0: Well, let's take our Bibles, and for the last time, for those who are regulars, after three years to the Sunday, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter thirteen. When uh, when I was leaving seminary, the only practical instruction we got was in the last hour, and in that last hour, we were told how to do a wedding, a funeral how to lead an officer's meeting. And we were given some advice about what to preach. <clears throat> and the advice we were given was you should try early on some of, the, some of the densest, biggest texts in the Bible. So go for the stuff that's hard. Try early on. So you make a mess early on. You can always tidy the mess up. Later on, you can Uh, One of the things that we were told was that one of the best ways to get to to know what a book of the Bible is teaching is to preach on it and to do so regularly. Dr. John MacArthur has been in his church over 50 years. I think he's preached through Romans uh, five times and John's gospel about six times. And he's preached through other books of Mark, I think, seven times or something ridiculous uh, to the same congregation over that period of time. But each time getting better, of course. That's what you hope, each time getting better. First time I preached on Hebrews, I was 26 years of age. If you'd asked me what I knew then, I would have told you, I know everything there is to know here. <laughs> I was quite confident, I was quite confident in my abilities to handle, I thought, this is, a, this, is a, this is the best anybody's ever preached on Hebrews. I'd never heard anybody preach in Hebrews, so I was the only one I could test it on. And I have still never heard anyone preach on Hebrews except myself, funnily enough. <clears throat> But I will say about this time, not only is it four times longer than any other time, but it is also true to say that I feel as if this time I have sucked the juices out of the texts, and it has been nourishing and delightful to the senses. I'm just talking for myself. At least, no matter what you think about it, I don't care. I have loved it. And now, sadly, the end is nigh. <clears throat> We're looking at these two verses in Hebrews uh, 13. And what I'd like you to do, here's your, I don't usually give homework. Here's your homework for this week. I think you should take these verses and pray them for yourself every day this week. Whatever else you do for readings of so on, this is short enough even for you guys to read and remember and to think about over the week. I mean, you could do this, and it would be good for you to do it. It's a prayer. Let's read this great benediction. What a way to end uh, the study and to end this book. The writer says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he refers to the peace of God in Christ Jesus that passes all understanding, that is, The peace of God that is inconceivable to us, incomprehensible to us, beyond our ability to get our heads around. For it is this peace, the peace of God, the peace of the God of peace, that reintegrates human existence, restores it to what it was. It is the peace of the God of peace that reconciles people to God, reconciles people to one another. And it is this peace of the God of peace that in the end will bring together all the disparate parts of our universe and make them cohesive again and whole again. We, we looked last time uh, the language uh, in Colossians 1 about the reconciliation of all things. Or the language in Hebrew, Ephesians chapter 1. The purpose of God is to unite all things in Him, that is in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And the instrument of peace is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. God with us. God manifest in the flesh. The Prince of peace. So, these words, the God of peace or the peace of God, are the key to unlocking this great prayer. And we have three three points this morning to walk our way through it. The proof of peace, the price of peace, and the prayer of peace. Let's look at the proof of peace. Here's the flow of the sentence. The flow of the sentence is this, that by or on the basis of the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus was brought again from the dead. That's the flow of the argument. And you notice how the author puts right up at the very top line, as it were, of his prayer, the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of the Christian message. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Let me give you this definition from Romans chapter 10. If you confess, that is with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, meaning you're willing to acknowledge to other people and tell other people that you believe that Jesus is the Lord God. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's just another way of saying then you will be a Christian. Then you will be somebody who knows God and has eternal life. So confessing Jesus as Lord, believing in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Or or you take Romans chapter 1 in which the Apostle Paul is outlining the theme of that great book. It's one of the biggest books in the New Testament, one of the greatest books in in the Bible. If not the greatest, depending on your proclivities, But the theme of the book is stated right at the very beginning, and then the middle and in the end, but at the beginning. It is about the gospel of God concerning His Son, who was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. That's the good news. The good news is in the resurrection. Because as Christians, you see, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam have got a dead philosopher, a dead teacher, and a dead prophet. But if Christianity had a dead savior, there would be no Christianity. There is no reason for Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. None whatsoever. It would not exist today. That is a fact of history. Apart from the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Because the resurrection is the key to unlocking all that Christianity is about. Now, who raised Jesus from the dead Well, in this text, the answer is God, the God of peace. And there, that expression is a catch-all. When we talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all caught up, as it were, in that description. They are all one God, the God of peace. So who raised Jesus? God the Father raised Jesus, we're told, in the book of Acts. Uh, This Jesus, God, that is the Father, raised up. God the Son Raised up Jesus. He once said to some people, referring to his body as a temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He says to another group of people, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have power to lay down, I have power to take it again. Jesus died and rose again. God the Spirit raised Jesus We read in Romans chapter 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So, he rose by God's hand. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's a Latin phrase that you need to know. You don't need to memorize it. Opera trinitatis ad extra indivisa sunt. Opera. Meaning... Action, work, activity. Trinitatis would be the Trinity. So the action, the work of the Trinity, ad extra, that is outside of the Godhead, that is anything outside of God, which is the universe, the action of God, the Trinity, without Himself, towards that which is outside of Himself is indivisible. There's only one God who acts in all that he does outside of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one will and one power in God. That's what Jesus was referring to when he said to people, when, whatever the Father does, that the Son does also. For as the Father raises the dead again and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Whatever Father, the Father does, the Son does, and I and the Father are one. God is one. God acts indivisibly towards that which is outside of himself. The resurrection is the work of God, the Holy Trinity. Now, this resurrection was hinted at throughout the Old Testament. There are hints of it in Isaiah 53 that talk about the Messiah and His death, and they say that even though He dies, He will prolong His days. Even though He dies, He will see the fruit of His soul. Even though He dies, He will live to justify, that is, put right with God, many people. Jesus foretold His resurrection. Uh, He said to one group of people, uh, after the Apostle Peter has uh, confessed that he is the Son of the living God, Jesus, from that time, it says, began to show the disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things there and be killed there and be raised again on the third day. He talked about it all the time. And there were many eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Angels, women, disciples, enemies, friends, as many as 500 people, this room full of people, saw him alive, spoke to him, ate with him, conversed with him, had him among them. The resurrection lies at the heart and core of what it means to be a Christian. One of the disciples, known as Thomas, is often called the doubter, Uh, I, I don't think, I think Thomas gets a bad rap, actually. I think Thomas was a very intelligent man, and when he started hearing reports about Jesus being alive, he was skeptical. But he was skeptical because he had begun to think through the implications of Jesus being alive. On that first Sunday, when Jesus rose again from the dead in the morning, in the evening when they were gathered in an upper room with the doors locked because they were afraid that they would be arrested by the authorities and killed alongside their master Jesus, Jesus appeared to them in that upper room. They were amazed. They were alarmed. They were afraid that Jesus had come. There he was. We saw you dead, buried. Here you are, alive. They weren't hallucinating. They didn't expect to see Jesus alive. And there he was, talking to them, hugging them, shaking their hands, eating with them. Thomas heard about all this, and Thomas started to think, supposing it was true. If Jesus was really alive, what does this say about Jesus? Next Sunday, Thomas is there. Jesus returns, and he goes straight to Thomas, and he was saying, Thomas, you were saying... You were saying, unless you put your finger in the wounds of my hand, well, give me your finger, Thomas. Here, look, put put it there. Or put your hand in the spear wound in my side. Give me your hand, Thomas. Put it right there. There you go. You would not believe. Thomas had calculated out what that would mean. If Jesus is alive, there's only one conclusion. He'd been repeating it along with his Jewish compatriots in the synagogue, Sabbath by Sabbath, the entirety of his life, the Shema of Israel. And Thomas spills it out. My Lord and my God. And he worships him there. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely crucial to identifying who Jesus really is. The resurrection is God's way of of declaring that he's accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. It's God's way of declaring that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God. He declares him to be that with power by the resurrection it shows us that Christ has defeated our worst enemy. What is our worst enemy in this room today? It is that in a hundred years, not one of us in this room is going to be in this room. And in a hundred years, they've probably forgotten your name. Death is the worst enemy. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates our worst fears, and our worst enemy has been defeated. And because Jesus rose— his promises that we will rise one day and be given a resurrection body in a newly reformed and recreated heaven and earth are true. And it was a display of God's power. That is the proof of peace. That's where God points us to. Do you want to know whether there is a God? Do you want to know whether there is a God who is willing to, to have Good relationships with you, be at peace with you, uh, be reconciled to you, be a friend to you. Look at the resurrection of Jesus, the proof of peace. Secondly, the price of peace, the price of peace. Look how he puts it, the resurrection is the proof that what happened in Jesus Christ is powerful and effective. Look how he puts it, in three things that he says. First of all, we have a Savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. We have a Savior. That's what his name means, our Lord Jesus. The word Lord is a title for God, and it emphasizes the supreme sovereignty of God. The word Jesus is a title of God. It means The Lord, that is the Lord God, saves. He saves. He is the Lord who saves. And there's another word there you need to notice. It is our Lord Jesus. He belongs to us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. When God was revealing himself in the Old Testament to the prophets... In the psalm, for example, Psalm 106, the, the prophet Samus says this, God, their Savior, did great things for them in Egypt. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 60, everyone will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God is the Savior. Jesus' name, the Lord who saves. It's a fully loaded divine title. The name given to him by the angel, to his his stepfather, Joseph, you shall call his name, the Lord saves, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We have a Savior. That's the first thing. Second thing, we have a Shepherd. He's the great Shepherd of the sheep. Now, these Hebrews, these Hebrews we notice, these are converts from Judaism. These are people who, for whom Hebrew is their, is their first language or perhaps second language, Aramaic and Hebrew, but they know the Hebrew Scriptures through and through. They know very well that this word shepherd, the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep is a title for God. It's a title for God. One of our favorite psalms to sing is Psalm 23, which begins, How? The Lord is my shepherd. God reveals himself as the one who cares for his people, as a shepherd cares for his flock. And when the prophets are talking about the coming of the Messiah, they say this about him, he will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those who are with young He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He said this himself, I am the good shepherd. I know mine, and mine know me. Those who belong to me, I know them. And those who belong to me know me. The sheep. The sheep whom the Father has given to his Son. They were chosen before the foundation of the world. And they're enabled to know him and to follow him and to hear his voice. And he calls them each by name. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the family of God. He's talking about the flock of God. He's talking about you being a sheep. Now, it's not altogether a rather commendable description, is it? Sheep. You know, They need help. They'd get lost very easily. They get into trouble very easily. Twice in my life, I've been able to help a sheep out. Twice going on walks, I've discovered a sheep in a meadow. Well, the last time was in a meadow. And uh, fully loaded with, uh, I was going to say fur, wool, obviously. Fully loaded with wool and needing cut. And this deer sheep had rolled over onto its back. Now the weight of the wool pressing down on it. After half an hour to an hour, I think, the lungs would collapse and the sheep would die. And there's only one thing you can do for those sheep. You grab a hold of their wool, you grab a hold, and you f- forget its noise and its kicking, and you pull it up, back onto its feet. It never says thank you, by the way. <laughs> Off it goes. But its friends who are watching you, they, they do a little moo, and you think, oh, yeah, 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 they, they noticed. <laughs> sheep need help. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. He appoints under shepherds to help him look after his sheep, the flock of God. But no under-shepherd, no pastor or elder can do what Christ does for us. He is the great shepherd. He is the the chief shepherd. And he reminds, he reminds his under-shepherds the way he reminded the Apostle Peter when he was commissioning the Apostle Peter. He said to Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He says it three times. And every time, he emphasizes, this flock is mine. These people belong to me. Never think that they're your dominion or your, your puppets or whatever. They belong to Jesus. They are Jesus' sheep. And he loves them. And you better love them too. The flock that belongs to Christ are those whom the Father elected, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit sanctified. We have a Savior, we have a shepherd, and we have a sacrifice. Look at this. Jesus said, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here we have it. He is a shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Whose blood? His own blood. He is the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Sometimes we talk about the the death of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus being a sacrifice of infinite worth. He is the God-man. He offers a sacrifice. It has within it the potential to save everybody, anybody, everywhere, at all times. There's no question of the value of Jesus' sacrifice. The question is, why did he come into the world? Why did he go to the cross? Who was on his heart on the cross? Who has he come to rescue and save? Answer, my sheep. Those that you have given me, he says to his father. They were yours, you gave them to me, and for their sakes I consecrate myself. And he does so, he sheds his blood, but that becomes the... Uh, The ratification of a covenant, the the new covenant, the covenant of grace, decided, formed in the the mind of God, the triune God, before the world began, and then put into action and ratified by the shed blood of Jesus. And His death, this book has been teaching us, His death so far excels all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. They were all pointing towards him. He was laying down his life in order that he might give his sheep eternal life. Old Testament prophets like Zechariah refer to the blood of my covenant. Ezekiel 37 refers to this, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant. See, on the cross, the wages of sin were paid. The wages of sin are death. On the cross, Jesus, who would never die because he was perfect and pure and sinless, therefore the wages of sin do not apply to him, He takes our place, puts Himself under a curse by being hung on a cross. So, indirectly, He becomes cursed in our place. And there on the cross, He bears our sin, our wrongdoing, and He's punished in our place. He takes the punishment. He is both the punisher and the punished. He takes our punishment in order that we might go free, in order that there might no longer be any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's great. It's great salvation. Was he successful? Well, the, the text tells us. The proof is there. God raised him from the dead on the basis of the fact that he had offered the one sacrifice that could deal with the sin problem for all time there on the cross so you have the proof of peace and the price of peace and then thirdly we have the prayer of peace we get to the point here don't we in in that 21st verse may the god of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will literally May he make you perfect in all goodness. May he perfect you in every good work to do his will. Now, what this this teaches us is this. uh, In coming into the world, Jesus does a number of things. Chapter 1 of this book, he comes to reveal God to us. God's invisible. God's immaterial. God's incomprehensible. We can't get our heads around him. We can't see the invisible. We can't touch the immaterial. We cannot get around some being that, for whom the universe is a speck. So what does he have to do? He has to come and be one of us. Like a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. He comes among us. What if God was one of us? The answer of the Scripture is that he was. That's been the teaching of this book. He has come into the world. And he's come into the world not only to reveal God, but also to redeem us, which he did by his death. But that's not where it stops. He has come to start a project of recreation, reclamation, and reintegration for us. What do we need? We need a reordering of our minds, so that we think God's thoughts. We need a reforming of our desires so that we want what God wants. And we need a realigning of our wills so that we will God's will. We can't do that in our own. So we need to pray for it. We need to pray for it. <laughs> he prays that we would be equipped. That's one, uh, that's one uh, translation, or fitted would be another, or made able would be another way of putting it. The same word is used in chapter 11, verse 3, when God fashions the world at creation, fashions the world by his word. It's also used in chapter 10, verse 7, by God creating a fitting body for His eternal Son to to have when He becomes one of us, when He puts our skin on, as it were, and comes into our world to be with us. That was prepared for Him, and it was a suitable, fitting body through which the divine God could express Himself humanly and work humanly in a human body to learn obedience, for example. God didn't know anything about obedience. But he learns obedience in our human nature. And he was hungry in our human nature. He was tempted in our human nature. He was tired in our human nature. He had to wake up every morning. He slept in our human nature because that's what we do. And he died in our human nature. And He rose again in our human nature. God experienced all of that in this body God had prepared for Him that was fitted for Him. That's the idea behind this word. equipped, fitted, fit you, enable you with everything good that you may do His will. Now, this is a very vital point. There are some sermons that sound as if really all they're doing is handing... The congregation, a list of things to do during the week. A little snapshot of actions and things that you should perform. This is not going to be one of those sermons. This text is not talking about those things. Some of us make big mistakes in thinking that we must kind of self-persuade ourselves to do the right thing in certain circumstances when we're tempted, for example. The the, the pressure is on us to persuade ourselves or to persuade other people or to have the minister work hard at persuading us that we need to correct this or that thing that's wrong with us in our lives. I want to put it to you that it's impossible for me to persuade you or for you to persuade yourself or for you to persuade anyone else of the rightness of something. And the answer is in this text as to how this happens. Do you see what he's doing? He is praying. He is asking God to do what we cannot do for ourselves. He is praying, may the God of peace Equip you with everything good that you need so that you may do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight. We need God to get involved in the business of reorienting and reordering and reforming and realigning our lives towards Himself. That's why we pray. Sometimes prayer is the last thing we do because we don't realize that a lot of the things that we think we need to do, we need God to do for us, in us. As we need this mighty and working of God. Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of the early church, Father's puts it like this, what is, good, what is good work and word? It is so, to have, so as to have both life and doctrine right according to his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Aquinas says, we need God to will, to enable us to will God's will. All of these writers, including our Reformed writers, take us again and again to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, for God, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. To will and to work. God's the one who enables us both to want to do the right thing and to do the right thing. willing to work for his good pleasure. You see, Paul can say in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What our prayer should be, and that's why I asked you to use these words as a prayer every day this week, what we should be doing is asking God, O God, you who are the God of peace, You brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus. Well, that means you can do anything if you brought Jesus back from the dead. Equip me with everything good that I may do your will. Will you work in me what is pleasing in your sight? And do it through Jesus Christ. Do it through this one who's been introduced in this letter. To be the word, the last word to humanity. To be the one who is unchanging and unchangeable. To be the one who is the eternally only begotten of the Father. To be the one who became for a little while lower than the angels when he took on our humanity and was found in fashion as a man, as a human being, through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory? Glory is something God does not share with anyone else. Glory is a form of praise and of, of exalted thoughts about God that we must only have about God and about nobody else. And He will not share them with any other creature. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, we're saying... That he deserves all the worship, adoration, admiration, acknowledgement and recognition that we would give to God himself. The glory of the eternal Son. The glory of the one who is the mediator. That is, who is the God-man, the one who brings God and humanity together in himself. All grace, all God's gifts derive from him. And all glory belongs to him. All the praise and worship of the people of God belong to Jesus. It's through Jesus that we are equipped and able-fitted to live and will and work in a way that pleases God. And to this Jesus be glory Forever and ever, timelessly, eternally, without end, without intermission, forever. Amen. That is how it should be. It is as it is, it is, as it is. how it ought to be. Amen. It is true. It is certain. It is absolute. It's wonderful. Amen. All glory and honor for all grace and mercy for time and eternity should be given to God in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. And all the people said, Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this day that you would take us, take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You are the God of peace. Will you equip us with everything good that we may do your will, working in us, into us, that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.